When you come here as an immigrant with nothing, you realize that this is a country that provides opportunities. One hopes equal opportunities, equal protections. These are not just words to an immigrant like me. They, they mean something. Welcome to Ladies First with Laura Brown. I'm Laura Brown, editor-in-chief of InStyle Magazine, and each week I'm talking to a legendary lady about what she does, how she does it, and what we can learn from her. But this week, I'm handing the reins to InStyle.com Deputy Editor Laura Norkin. She sat down with the amazing Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii, the very first Asian-American women to be elected to the Senate. I'll be back next week with more ladies and more firsts. Welcome to Ladies First, InStyle's podcast where we speak to women who are first in what they do. I'm InStyle.com Deputy Editor Laura Norkin, and it is my honor to speak with Senator Maisie Hirono, who knows a thing or two about coming first. Hello, Senator Hirono. So nice to speak with you today. Aloha, Laura. Aloha. I just want to take a minute on all of these firsts because rarely do we get a guest who so literally exemplifies our whole deal here. For those who are unaware, Senator Hirono is the first elected female senator from Hawaii, the first Asian American woman elected to the Senate, the first U.S. senator born in Japan and the only immigrant serving in the Senate right now, and the nation's first Buddhist senator. And only so far (laughs) in the Senate. So you were recently interviewed by my colleague, Samantha Simon, as part of the May issue of InStyle magazine, speaking about your memoir, Heart of Fire, which just came out last week. I want to speak more about that in just a moment, but also last week you had another major victory, which was the Asian American hate crimes bill, which you co-sponsored overwhelmingly passing in the Senate. In a year when Asian American people have experienced such excruciating abuse, then in one week to pass this bill onto the House, and release your personal story out into the world. Can you tell me how that felt, the highs and lows of all of that happening at the same time? Last week was a pretty busy week. (laughs) The COVID-19 hate crimes bill uh, had been put on the floor, Senate floor, about two weeks before, and that is why we began to gather some bipartisan support for it, some bipartisan amendments. I certainly worked closely with Susan Collins, the Republican senator from Maine, too, broadens the support for the bill. But there were still people who weren't too crazy about the bill, but they just didn't know how they could manage to derail it. (laughs) They tried with some 20 amendments to the bill after it had hit the floor, and they failed. And lo and behold, the bill passed. Although originally I couldn't get a single Republican to co-sponsor that bill. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, The vote is, quote, proof that when the Senate is given the opportunity to work, the Senate can work to solve important issues, Um, end quote. What do you think the vote proves or what does it mean to you? It shows exactly what Chuck Schumer said, that when there is a meeting of the minds, but particularly when the Republican leader pretty much signals that he would like to see something pass, and I was told that he said so in their caucus lunch, then things can happen. And this is why if Mitch McConnell tomorrow said, I'm going to work with the Democrats uh, to pass the infrastructure bill, to pass the policing reform bill, it would happen. There would always be the holdouts, but Mitch McConnell isn't taking that position because his goal in life is to retake the Senate. And that means that uh, he doesn't want the Democrats to succeed in some of the major legislation that I just mentioned to you. Mm -hmm. So do you think this is kind of can be seen as symbolic to voters that that even a bill that's very far to the left will pass if a certain person gets out of the way? I, I wouldn't say that 
or that infrastructure and the need for policing reform, that these are a sensible gun legislation. These are massively supported by the American public. So these are not exactly left-leaning bills, even if the Republicans love to characterize everything as, you know, going far to the left. That's just their talking point. Good point. But this particular bill was important because of two things. First, I think it is the first time that Congress, the Senate, and then the follow followed by the House, took a position to say, we are not going to put up with discrimination against Asian American Pacific Islanders because for the longest time there had been that kind of discrimination as manifested in the Chinese Exclusion Act, in the internment of 120,000 Japanese Americans in World War II, in the Muslim ban and, and all of that. So this is a community that felt invisible. And with the rise of hate crimes against Asians, even the Republicans couldn't turn their faces away from what was happening all across the country and these devastating, totally unprovoked attacks. You're Japanese-American. And looking at your history, it might seem obvious to some why you were the, the face of the Asian hate crimes bill. In 2019, you put forth a first-of-its-kind bill proposing that the United States pay reparations to Black Americans, which did not pass. Is seeking a more just future part of what brought you into politics and a through line into your work in general? Yes. When you come here as an immigrant with nothing and uh, you realize that this is a country that provides opportunities, uh, one hopes equal opportunities, equal protections. These are not just words to an immigrant like me. They, they mean something. And uh, certainly I would like to see uh, equal opportunity, justice for all. It's not just words, but uh, things that really can come to pass. And we're we're not there yet. So the uh, fights continue and eternal vigilance is required. So something you touch on in your memoir and that even the title Heart of Fire seems to allude to to me is that you've been known to have a softer demeanor, a gentler hand maybe than some of your colleagues in Washington, but you've certainly burned just as bright. How do you get things done in D.C. when you operate on let's say, a different wavelength than some of the more aggressive personalities there? I would like to be collaborative. I think most of us would like to uh, be collaborative and, and work cooperatively, but uh, these are very divisive times. And I'll, I, I'm not going to just be really warm and fuzzy when my Republican colleagues are busy trying to kick off millions of people off of health care or they, they can't even vote for the, the rescue plan that provides funds and money for millions of people. They can't even do that. So, you know, I'm not going to feel all warm and fuzzy when they're basic, basically screwing people over. True. There's a time and place for warm and fuzzy, and there's a time and place <laughs> for absolutely not that. Yes. And all of us are, Laura, all of us are capable of getting out of our comfort zones. And, and for, the, for a long time, I was able to accomplish a lot of things without being particularly vocal, but uh, the times also showed that we all can be a, a get out of our comfort zones and, and be much more vocal. So through this process of the Trump administration and all the horrible things that they did, I uh, really expanded my vocal range, let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> what did that feel like? Well, first of all, I uh, I had to get out of my comfort zone. It was a conscious kind of a um, thing that I did to go and talk to the national press, which is something that I really avoided. But once I began to do that and uh, realized that it was important for people to hear someone who spoke very, very plainly about what was happening, 
from my perspective. And so I got a lot of feedback pre-COVID days. People would come up to me and, and say, you know, I really like the way you put things, which is really plainly. <laughs> it's very freeing. <laughs> That's great. That's great to hear. Is there ever anything that you do or that you did in order to psych yourself up to sort of prepare for those big moments of I'm about to be loud and it's not in my nature and I'm just going to do it? I don't consider my being vocal being loud. Um, I consider it just speaking up and saying things that I want to. And because I am a Democrat, we I always prepare. You know, we Democrats always like to have the facts <laughs> so we know where we speak. But at the same time, uh, I do prepare for my uh, chats with the national press. At the same time, I don't script out what I'm going to say. And so often the things will come out that... Uh, it's just speaking very plainly, which means sometimes I swear, but, you know, <laughs> I've said in the Trump years, if you weren't uh, provoked to swear once in a while, you're not paying attention. Sort of on that same point, recently, Politico journalist Caitlin Fawson wrote that Hard on Fire is unique among books by politicians. And I'm quoting her. It's written more in the tone of a late night conversation between two close friends or a journal entry than a town hall or a stump speech. What's so interesting to me about that is she's using kind of gendered language that's often used to detract from women in the professional and certainly the political sphere, but it's clear that she means it as a compliment. Yes. That this is your strength. And recently being featured as a badass woman, since now I know that swearing is okay, a badass woman on InStyle magazine, we certainly would argue that that is your strength. Tell me about your choice to approach your memoir as a woman story first, rather than a political resume kind of story. I dedicated the book to my mother, who uh, was uh, a courageous risk taker who changed my life by bringing me to this country. And so it was a, a, a telling of her story in as a, a, a truthful way as possible. So it was not a recitation of the events of my life but it's a, a reflection on how it felt, uh, what it provoked in me, how it informs uh, what I do now, because I never forget where I came from and uh, who I fight for and why. It's people who don't have much of a voice who come from uh, humble beginnings who, who just would like to have an opportunity to be uh, happy and thrive in this country. And we know we're far from there for so many people in our country. Tell me a little bit more about that, about the humble beginnings or the story of your mom that brought your attention to these important issues that sort of started that fire in you to speak for the voiceless. So the title of the book is uh, Heart of Fire, and it refers to my mother. She uh, made a really bad marriage to my father, who I never got to know, because it turned out, and she didn't know this when she married him, that he was a compulsive gambler and an alcoholic. Needless to say, he did not take care of the family and would sell off her things and was pretty much not supportive. But at the same time, she was living with his parents, in-laws, and in Japan, in a very traditional family that uh, she ended up with. The wife is uh, treated like a slave and a chattel. It was a terrible marriage, and over time, she determined that she had to get control over her life. That meant not only was she going to escape this horrible, abusive situation, but she had to plot to take all her children with her, which is, needless to say, uh, very courageous for a woman at that time, or at any time for that matter. 
And so I wrote this book to tell her story and at the same time to bring in the story of my grandmother who helped to raise me in Japan when I was three. And so the generations of a very strong, determined women. And I tried to make it as authentic and true as possible. Yeah. Absolutely. So recently, my colleague Sam Reed wrote a very revealing essay for InStyle.com about her Japanese-American family and how racism was not discussed as a part of their experience. And even her grandparents who experienced internment during World War II sort of passed down the notion that they should just feel grateful for the place that they have now in this country and the hardships that they may have faced were not as bad, they might say, as what Black Americans were enduring and had in the history of this country. Now, you were here and a student when the civil rights movement was taking hold. Did you feel silenced in a similar way or pressured to take any racist or sexist discrimination that came your way, taking it in stride? Or did you understand even then the joint struggle of marginalized communities that you speak about today? Hawaii is a very multicultural place where there's no race that is a majority That is one of the reasons probably that we get along better. It's not perfect. And that if we have um, racist thoughts about somebody else, we tend to keep it to ourselves, which is a good thing. So I grew up very fortunate in a state where multiculturalism is, is considered a strength, not a weakness, not anything to be afraid of. I fully recognize that my uh, counterparts on the mainland, as we call it, uh, we really went through racism and you know overt racism, especially during World War II, when you see some of the newspaper articles and horrible depiction of Japanese as the enemy. But at the same time, these families whose lives were destroyed, many uh, lives were destroyed. Their, their farms, their businesses were taken away or sold for a pittance, and, uh, and yet they they basically sucked it up. There's a there's a Japanese word called gaman. It means you just forbear. And at some point, that, that kind of forbearance, I don't consider it healthy. And we're not talking about trying to pit the discrimination, the, the systemic uh, racial discrimination against the black community, which continues, which our country has never faced up to. But we don't need to compare the kind of racism that was targeting the Japanese Americans or the Chinese in their Chinese Exclusion Act or the Muslims to say that any of this discrimination in our country is not okay. And that racism is never far below the surface in our country against any marginalized group. And therefore, uh, we all have to step up and speak up. And this is why with the rise of hate crimes against the AAPIs, I see so many Asian faces, more than ever in the history that I know of, where they're speaking up, and that is necessary. That's what we have to do. And when we speak up for our community, we're speaking up for all the other communities that are targeted in this way. Absolutely. I do think that you've seen a lot of unity in the last year with Asian Americans for Black Lives Matter and then vice versa, the Black Lives Matter activists speaking up against anti-Asian hate crimes. I do think if any progress has been made in the United States on that issue, it's that we're better able to hold multiple ideas at once now so we can understand that Black Americans have endured ruthless immeasurable marginalization and violence often at the hands of police. And also we now see Asian Americans have been targeted specifically since COVID, but 
certainly not only since COVID. And also, as you pointed out back in 2018, during the confirmation of Justice Brett Kavanaugh, that women are often not heard or believed or are shamed into silence about the various abuses that they experience. So my question is, all of these things being true and neither making any of the other less true, it feels like we're existing in a time of great urgency on all of these conversations. How do you, as a Japanese-American woman, as an immigrant, and of course as a senator and a member of the Judiciary Committee, how do you meter out your attention? How do you determine what to prioritize and what to fight for on any given day? I prioritize those things that will provide equal justice, and therefore we need to pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I believe in the ability of people to vote without having their votes stolen or suppressed. So we need to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. So those kinds of things that create opportunities for people, that create an equal or a level playing field for people, those are the things that that, uh, will get my attention. Clearly, it's the marginalized people whose voices are often not heard in the halls of uh, Congress. Those are the people I fight for also. But I'm not the only one. But I do bring a particular kind of perspective (laughs) to the discussion. Of course. Is there a piece of legislation, I guess the ones you just mentioned, or a change more broadly speaking, that you wish voters were more engaged around? I'd like to see comprehensive immigration reform and uh, with all of the other uh, really important legislation that I would have to include, of course, sensible gun legislation. Immigration is a particularly divisive subject. I'd like to see comprehensive immigration reform tackled once again, as we did in the Senate in 2013. Not a perfect bill, but there are over 11 million people in our country who are living in the shadows. Many of them are in the forefront of uh, the the, um, people who are working in our meatpacking plants and they need a path to citizenship. Not to mention, of course, the 800,000 DACA participants who uh, need to be protected from deportation. I'd like to see comprehensive immigration reform, but as I say, that is one of the really divisive issues in our country, even if, Laura, we are a country of immigrants They may have been here six generations, but so what? But for the indigenous peoples who were here long before we all showed up, we're all immigrants. I wish more people would remember that. Welcome back to Ladies First with Laura Brown. This week, Laura Brown is away. I'm InStyle.com Deputy Editor Laura Norkin, and I'm talking to Senator Maisie Hirono of Hawaii about her vital work in Congress. When this podcast airs, it's going to (laughs) be a little bit in the future. So let's hope that the Asian American Hate Crimes Bill has been signed into law by that moment. What could you tell us will change in a day-to-day life kind of way once that bill becomes a law? What will it do? This law by itself is not going to change the hearts and minds of people who bear an animus toward the AAPI community. So clearly a lot more needs to happen. But this is a bill that is very pragmatic and let's get some data on the, the incidents of hate crimes across our country. 
we don't we don't have that kind of information. Not to mention that there are a number of states that don't even that do not even have hate crimes legislation. They don't even uh, define certain crimes to me that are obviously uh, racially factored, such as the killings in Georgia. And so uh, th- this is a, a way for us to reach out to our communities and and create a, an easier way for them. Uh, to report these kinds of crimes and incidents that have been uh, directed toward them so that we can determine what more needs to be done. But more importantly, Laura, this is a bill that fully put the Senate, followed by the House, to say we stand with the AAPI community. That has often felt invisible. And I know that around the time of the shootings in Georgia, when other hate crimes were happening simultaneously, there was reporting on many people just not wanting to report what had happened to them. And that sort of layers more pain and more trauma on top of violence. A certain family just has to care for their own secretly behind closed doors and doesn't feel that they're able to bring it to the community. These crimes are very, very much underreported. And that's what this bill hopes to shine some light on. Yes. Not an easy task, to be sure. Switching gears a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about how you relieve stress in D.C., which can be somewhat of a high-strung place, but also when you're carrying a lot of the burden of these conversations into your everyday life? I have a great husband who I talk to. I have friends that I talk to. And uh, ice cream and cupcakes always help. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Food helps. But I also read. I binge watch Netflix. I do uh, my creative parts. I uh, I have a tiny apartment, so I can't do the kind of uh, clay and and pottery that uh, I like to do. So I make paper and I make cards that I send to people to thank them for their kindnesses. Oh, I think I heard recently that you were doing um, origami crafts. Well, I also do that. I have an entire wall in my office that uh, is my origami installation. There are thousands and thousands of paper cranes. It's part of my culture. When you hope full the thousand cranes, the Kamisama, the gods, will grant you a wish. When I had my health diagnosis, there were a lot of people who folded cranes for me and sent them to me. And I literally find cherry blossom branches that have fallen on the ground while I'm walking around in D.C. And uh, these cranes are strung together and they are installed hanging from the branches. It's really a pretty uh, neat installation. (laughs) And we're always adding to it because we can always fold more cranes. So what are you hopeful for right now? What are you hoping the 10,000 cranes will bring to you now? Not just to me, but uh, some progress for people in our country. As I mentioned, we have some major, major bills that we have to pass because uh, there are voter suppression efforts. I call it stealing people's votes. Hundreds of bills introduced in legislatures all across the country, uh, Republican legislatures, to uh, make voting a lot harder. So you know, that that shouldn't be happening, but they're so overt about it. It is like robbery in the light of day. Yes. And so they they don't even try to justify it, except that they justify it by the big lie that, oh, there's all kinds of fraud going on. No, there isn't fraud going on. And so the fact that they build their legislation on the big lie is, uh, is really uh, um, just it's stealing people's elections. And then 
uh, that that goes to the, the need to pass voting rights legislation so that we, they don't gerrymander districts, which they can, and they're about to start doing that. And then we need to get our economy going. And I'd say that uh, the rescue package really helped families and working people uh, with direct funding and to state and local governments that were facing huge shortfalls. But we need to create more jobs. So that's part of the infrastructure plan and what it will do. And the part of, and the, there's also the other part of the infrastructure plan that, that is the care economy. There are a lot of women, millions of women who left the job, uh, the job market during the pandemic. And we, they need childcare. They need all of these things in order to enable them to get back into the workforce. So part of the Build Back Better plan by Joe Biden will create those kinds of support for women to get back to work. What of those, if any, feels like the most urgent priority in your home state in Hawaii? Hawaii is a state that relies very much on tourism. And so we need uh, to reopen tourism. Our hotel industries, all the people who work in hotels, the restaurants have been really hard hit. We used to get something like eight or nine million tourists to Hawaii every year. Uh, and and it's, it's a job to practically nothing. So we have to rebuild all of that. Have you been able to go back and forth from Hawaii and D.C. much? Yes. I go back about once a month during our recesses. And, um, I, of course, I you know, social distance, the mask, and uh, all, all of that. I get tested before I go home. And uh, most of us have been vaccinated already, as I have. So I will tell you before I get into my next question that I was born and raised in the D.C. area, and I will always have a place in my heart for it. There's a lot of charm there, but it takes a lot of flack, especially from your colleagues who, you know, have their home states to return to. It may not be their favorite city in the country. What do you think of D.C.? And and what is it like, that sort of back and forth from Hawaii to D.C.? They're very different places. Yes, but our country is a very different country with all kinds of States and DC needs to become a state. Here, here. DC people pay more taxes per capita than the, the people of any other state. They also have more population than at least two other states. So at this point, taxation without representation, my goodness, that's a that's a pretty basic thing. So DC should get state statehood. I also went to school here, and there there are great museums here for free. Uh, you know, the the, the best. seat of government is here. So really, I have a, a very warm uh, spot in my heart for D.C. And of course, it enables me to do the kind of purposeful work that, that uh, I want to do. And I think people hear that refrain, uh, taxation without representation, and it just sounds like a handy rhyme. But to me, what is underneath the lack of representation is that D.C. is um, a majority Black city or... I think, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn with my data there, at least one of the like highest populations of Black Americans in D.C., in the city. And and the fight against giving it statehood, to me, feels like a racially motivated decision again. I think there definitely is a, a racial component to some people not wanting D.C. to become a statewide because they don't want two Democratic senators. That's the bottom line. That's not a very good reason to withhold statehood from people who meet other indicators of statehood, meaning you pay your taxes and you have a population that is uh, larger than at least two other states. So before we move on to 
the sort of fun final lightning round here. I heard a rumor that you are a fan of BTS. Oh, yes, I love them. (laughs) (laughs) I decided I liked them when I heard two of their earlier songs. One was called uh, Everybody Say No. So that's the kind of rebellious anthem that would appeal to me. And then uh, it was about the very, very structured Korean school system. So that really caught my attention. And the other one is Not Today, which is also another kind of anthem for me. Like, you know, some people want to get things that will push us down, but not today. Today we fight. (laughs) That's also from Lord of the Rings, another (laughs) one of my favorites. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So the way that we usually wrap up Ladies First is with a little lightning round game called Ten Firsts. We just say some snappy, like, fun, quick things, and you can answer as short or as long as you want. So Ten Firsts, are you ready? Okay. What is the first drink you order? Red wine, if I'm drinking alcohol. (laughs) I think many, many women can relate. Uh, Who's the first person you call? My husband, who's in Hawaii. (laughs) Yeah, so hopefully you're you're making that call a lot. (laughs) Oh, yes, every day, several times a day, in fact. (laughs) First thing you do in the morning? Okay, I do turn on the TV, uh, MTV, um, at MSNBC, (laughs) I should say. I wish it were MTV. MTV would be fun, but MSNBC makes more sense. Yeah, no, it's MSNBC, Um, except for the weekends. On the weekends, I watch other programs to restore my energy and all of that. (laughs) What's the first thing you turn on on TV on the weekends? (laughs) I often watch uh, NHK, which is uh, an Asian-Japanese programming. Because uh, I really love Japan. I don't live there, but, but uh, I, I think their aesthetics and the culture is something that I, I want to learn more about. And so I watch NHK. I learn a lot. Okay. First joke you remember? I can't remember any jokes. <laughs> I literally can't. I, I, but I like to laugh. I'll tell you a joke my five-year-old made up recently. What does a cat say when it gets hurt? Meow. Okay, I get it. <laughs> I bet you can remember so this that is one. Your, this is your daughter. She's a cat person. She is. I am a total cat person. I had one, and I, uh, he lived with us for over 20 years. Aww. And so I have his ashes, and uh, he remains my uh, whatever it is on my iPad. The screensaver. <laughs> the screensaver. Yes. What was your cat's name? His name was Hemick. I named him for a bill that I got through the state legislature. <laughs> oh my goodness. What a flex. Ladies and gentlemen. I know. His name is Hemick. It stands for Hawaii Employers Mutual Insurance Company. <laughs> it's very strange, but, you know, it was such a big deal to get that bill passed. So the company is the biggest workers' comp insurance company now in the state of Hawaii. And so they know I'm the mother of them as well as mother of the cat. <laughs> What a proud legacy for him. Okay. First fashion splurge or your most precious fashion item? (laughs) I tend to wear the same earrings and necklace so I don't have to think about it. This is kind of my signature. And um, it's a David (laughs) Yerman. And uh, some people go into the David Yerman store and they ask for the Maisie necklace. And then I also now have some of my mother's rings. I try to wear something of my mother's every day. 
Oh, lovely. First date. Oh, <laughs> gosh, that was so long ago. Oh, my gosh. I can tell you the first uh, first date with my current husband, well, my one and only husband, was to, to see the movie Papillon. Um, it's long before your time with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah. That was the memorable date. What made it so memorable? Dustin Hoffman or? No, no. It was the first time I went out with my husband. So you knew right from then? Love at first date? No. <laughs> no. Please. And then we broke up. I burned all his pictures and all that. It was quite dramatic. And then we got back together 13 years later. And we got, after we got back, we got married within a, a number of months. And we now have been married for over 30 years. But I waited a long time to get married. I waited because I was busy. But listen, if he, if he survived the, uh, the photo bonfire and you still had space to bring him back, he must be special. Well, he had the courage to actually call me up because I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> we would never have gotten back together if he hadn't done that first. <laughs> okay. Good for him. So this is one that I think you mentioned before, but the first thing you do or eat when you're stressed out? Probably um, ice cream. Often it's a reward for me. First time I ran for office, I would buy a pint of haagen rum raisin and I would canvas for five hours, eight, six hours, whatever. And when I got home to my tiny little apartment, I could eat the whole pint by myself. That was a reward. Sure. I mean, <laughs> canvassing is another word for just walking very far and being on your feet all day. That's hard work. Knocking on total strangers' doors, asking them to vote for you. Since you said cursing is okay, this next question is the first time you owned your shit. And that means like the first time you really were like not taking any BS. Oh, probably when I was in the state legislature and a very powerful chairperson there tried to get my attention and basically he was trying to flirt with me and uh, he would go, pss, pss. And, and I finally I turned around and said, I don't answer to that. And he said, what do you answer to? And I said, try Maisie. And so he always called me Maisie after that. We were, all, we were really good, but people used to kiss his ring a lot because he was a very powerful person. And that was my first year in the state legislature. He better try Senator Hirono this time. I had a, I developed a reputation as the ice queen in the legislature. So there you go. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so the last question, the first thing you'll do when COVID is really, really done. Oh, I will uh, gather up my friends and go to a restaurant and be able to see people in person without masks. And we'll all raise a glass and we will eat uh, local foods and be happy. <laughs> Is that a restaurant in Hawaii you're imagining? Yes. A restaurant in Hawaii. I share that dream for the future. I can't wait to be <laughs> at a restaurant again with people. Senator Hirono, it was such an honor to speak with yes. you today. Now, is there any final message you would want to tell to the ladies' first audience? Well, it took me a long time to become a, a, my more complete self by really vocalizing things. And my hope is that, especially for the women, that it doesn't take them as long to become themselves. And we all have that capacity to do that. Hello, everybody. This has been Ladies First with Laura Brown. We can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Savarese, Danielle Roth, Anne Ford, Anne Kane, and Erica Wong. And thanks to Brian Anstey, Molly Stout, and Haley Mason at InStyle. 
You can find out more at InStyle.com. Find us on Instagram at InStyle Magazine, on Twitter at InStyle, and you can find me on Insta and Twitter at LauraBrown99. 